Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to March's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. Fresh turn from China, I'm delighted to welcome my co-presenter, Cormac O'Leara, MD of Electrios Energy, to run through some of the key talking points from the last month or so. Hey, Cormac. Hey, Mr. Fernley. Long time no, no yeah, speak. Uh, yeah. Apologies to regular listeners. Cormac uh, decided to um, go to China and I couldn't find anyone else to fill in for him last month. So Yeah, I shouldn't have been so lazy. I should have yeah. joined. We're back now and uh, I'm sure we'll be asking for your uh, holiday snaps and uh, views. Before we start, I would just like to flag uh, Battery Materials Review's yearbook 2022 yearbook which is available for free on our website it contains a number of articles about different aspects of the batteries and battery material sector that we're often asked about so check it out on our website to download for free adverts out of the way so tell us about china you went to the factory that manufactures my favorite type of ev yeah they weren't giving away seven years you know i thought i could fit it in the suitcase I think you could as well. <laughs> yeah, they will be introducing them to Europe. So uh, you'll have an opportunity oh, to really? get your hands on one. They weren't clear on the date but, uh, or the timing, but uh, the uh, you know Europe is a prime market for that size vehicle and they have like uh, different versions of it. Do you think that they are looking to make any changes to the base version? Because it has been sort of after... Uh, wiping the floor with the Tesla models for the first couple of years of its life, it has lost a bit of market share in the last year or so. Are they they going to be making any changes? They have, as I said, they have like mid-tier version, premier version, drop-top version. So there there is one for for every every type, but what uh, every customer. They're what they're pushing, uh, what they're more focused on is the um bells and whistles, the uh, experience of driving the car in terms of the actual EV and chassis. I didn't hear any talk about changing battery packs, updating battery packs or or developing CTP or or sell the chassis because, you know, that that would drive up the cost a lot. Um, and, and, And the consumers aren't really looking for that type of range that would you'd want to invest in, um, the kind of infrastructures required for a CTC. Yeah, well, I guess in that sort of vehicle, you're you have a, a very clear market compared to to the rest of the auto markets. So yeah, yeah, but well, I, want, I wanted to, you know, so we went to the uh, the main city where they're located, Luzhou, and uh, it's quite interesting to see a city full of Wulings, <laughs> mini Wulings EVs. Just the, the the amount they can park on the streets is phenomenal. Uh, and they're all quite colorful you know one of the big sales marketing aspects of those cars is you can um you know not just in in any color you can get like a man united version of that car chelsea or basketball team or your favorite movie they'll put the uh decals on the cars and uh, our paint job to your specification so So yeah that's an electrios one could do yeah yeah or we could get two bmr ones (laughs) for the price of one yeah okay so um any other um, interesting conclusions from from the trip? 
Well, that was just one aspect of the trip. We were there yeah. for uh, almost two weeks uh, on the road every day. We went everywhere, visiting all sorts of uh, players in the supply chain, including Jiangxi province where the Lepidolite is. We didn't get to visit any Lepidolite mines because a uh, number of them weren't operational at the time. <laughs> yes, yeah. for reasons that we'll go into uh, in a minute or two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Went to electrolyte factories, quite interesting, NMP factories, uh, every part of the supply chain. This was uh, when I'm a customer who's basically buying a whole gigafactory and exporting it out of China. What were you seeing? Did you? I, I assume you went to sort of cathode uh, producers and, and et cetera. And I think one of the things that's come out quite clearly in sort of January and the beginning of February um, is that there was a bit of a downturn in terms of uh, cell manufacturing in January and cathode and anode production as well. Did you see that or, or did people talk about sort of more operations? Kind of people I were meeting aren't really focused, focused on uh, market analytics, but what they, what I come a big takeaways was uh, they all believe Every component of the supply chain is coming down in price and there's going to be volume, no doubt about it. Uh, they're signing long-term contracts for various amounts of material at below current market prices. As I believe the prices are coming down um, over the next 12, 18 months. And also nearly every factory that's involved in electrolyte, cathode materials uh, and graphite, uh, anode materials, has also got a sodium ion plan. They're all getting involved in sodium ion as well. So uh, there will be a bit of a tsunami so- sodium ion activity in addition to what we're already seeing coming uh, on in the next two years as well, I believe. That's very interesting. And uh, was there any clarification on the sodium ion side in terms of the raw material supply chain? I mean, I'm hearing that you can use practically any form of sodium, but on the cathode side, it's a little bit more complex. We either use Prussian blue analog or or lead, uh, yeah. lead metal cathodes. We really didn't get into it, but uh, they're focused on like for like. So layer layer cathode materials, harder and soft carbon for the anode side. Basically, dropping using sodium hexafluorophosphate instead of lithium hexafluorophosphate. Similar mm-hmm. solvents. Um, they're looking for more kind of drop-in uh, solutions. They're not sodium mine. They're companies trying to get ahead of the wave of sodium. So it's not really clear, as you just mentioned, what the direction is going to be, but yeah. they all have uh, deep plans. And it wasn't like you meet, you know, we're all kind of on the fence, sodium mine. They're anticipating it's coming and it, it's coming and they're investing in the business. So it's kind of a little different outside here where we're kind of provided, a, will it work in EVs, kind of provide an opportunity in ESS. We're still trying to figure out where they're diving right into it, which I was surprised at. And any sort of additional takeaways that you you, you think? Uh... There's a, a few, you know, the uh, one thing interesting is that the, uh, I think it's unclear yet, but by the end of 2024, it looks like the Chinese government may introduce some policy where Chinese companies will not be allowed to export lithium-ion battery technology. That's the manufacturing materials outside China. So that could be a bit of a, an issue coming up in, in, in 12 months, if that goes through. That was the uh, unclear at the time, but it was a rumor circling amongst the manufacturers. So they are keen to get their products out of the country uh, and form new businesses and JVs internationally early if this policy is enacted. And any, um, obviously, one of the the very interesting uh, sort of developments of the month was this joint venture between Ford and CATL in, in the US. 
whereby Ford would own the plant and, and CATL would donate the IP, as it were. And that sort of talks to that point that you just yeah. made. Was there any sort of discussion on that? Because I understand that the Chinese government may not have been very happy with that as a solution and, and is uh, bringing CATL or doing a sort of study into CATL to find out uh, yeah. whether it's happy with, with exporting um, that IP to the US. Yeah, exactly. That I think that was a... This is a counter policy to some of the U.S. policies. There's going to be a government meeting later this month revising EV and battery policies, Chinese EV battery policies, uh, EV and battery policies. And it'll be interesting to find out in terms of where they see the uh, industry going and what Chinese role will be outside China. That definitely will be a risk given the dominance of, of China, particularly in the materials processing supply chain and not just in battery materials also in solar and wind and, and other areas i assume that this is in reaction to the um mind and administration's uh, strategy on on semiconductors for instance yeah exactly in terms of equipment you know it covers the whole the whole gamut equipment equipment is uh, battery assembly technology so how, how to put the cells together a lot of international companies are dependent on, on and so even if you buy equipment from Korean suppliers, they're getting the components for those uh, equipment from Chinese manufacturers or even equipment manufacturers. So you could be buying, um, you know, a, a, a Z folding assembly machine from a Korean supplier who got most of the components and design from Chinese manufacturers. So it could get complicated. Right. Okay. Well, that's uh, definitely something to keep an eye on. And, uh, Unfortunately, probably just another leg of the ongoing um, trade or a war, but should we call it argy bargy? I think argy bargy. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, a good description. I'm finding myself kind of in the middle of it a little bit, just in terms of a lot of my work is within China and a lot of the companies I work with want to work with China, Chinese companies or access Chinese materials. And of course, um, especially in the US, a lot of these policies are not really affecting the Chinese, uh, like in, in terms of tariffs and solar tariffs, it's the it's the U.S. companies who are paying the, the extra 25%. It's not the uh, Chinese companies who are selling it. Uh, so it really, really can have a detrimental effect on, on companies sourcing materials and equipment from China. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's talk briefly about the um, lipid sector, because obviously you were there, even though you didn't go to any mines. But... This was a, a very interesting development sort of um, during February with this environmental action by the Chinese government. My takeaway is that it's not really aimed at the large scale lipid light producers, but more the sort of mom and pop operations that are potentially less, shall we say, environmentally savvy or even don't give a damn about environment at all and just want to get the material out of the ground. My understanding is that's a, a, a quite a, a small percentage of the total lithium production out of uh, China, uh, and certainly a vanishingly small percentage of total battery-grade lithium. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I remember when this first surfaced earlier this year, and it was regarding uh, pollution of rivers, and you know they looked upstream, and uh, it was. Initially, it was uh, large lithium carbonate converters and lithium miners. But this is basically in response to lithium touching 600,000 RMB 
per ton price, domestic price in China. Mm. And lithium was known as the new gold. And it basically was a gold rush in the Yichun province, Yichun province of not unlicensed miners or villagers or people with access to lipidolite, just um, trying to cash in on what was going on. And then covering, uh, so as I said, it started as an environmental issue. And, and as you know, unregulated mining is notoriously uh, bad for the environment, uh, unlicensed mining especially. And uh, that's what it was. And so the they shut down all lithium conversion and mining in the region at the time. And some, the bigger the bigger guys, it's hard to tell if they were shut down by the government or they were doing care and maintenance. Uh, but they some mm-hmm. stopped for a week or two or a day or two. But the bigger guys... Uh, went back into production. There's few miners who aren't in production because they're getting inspected or getting their permits reviewed. Basically didn't have much of an effect on the overall lithium production in China yeah. in the last month. Yeah, I mean, that, that's basically sort of how, how I saw it from the, from the data that's coming out. Um, and, and, you know, I think one of the, the big unknowables for the rest of this year is a lot of this Lithium material used to go into the ceramics industry, which is obviously uh, dependent on the property industry, which has been very, very weak in China. And the big question is, if the property industry recovers and the the ceramics market comes back, how much of this material is going to be available, the sort of mom and pop type material is going to be available for the battery or industrial grade lithium market? And and it's possible that, that some of this may go away. That's something to be aware of. And I guess maybe sticking with lithium prices, we've seen quite an interesting move by CATL this month to make cells available to OEMs or, or some of its key contacts at basically a fixed price. So kind of like a cost of li- lithium plus a margin price. Do you have any sort of thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. So that's the um, lithium fixed rebate is the... Policy or plan is the, is the official name of it, I believe. Yeah, uh, it's locked in at 200,000. So if it's for not for everybody. Uh, premier preferred uh, CATL customers who buy over 10 gigawatt hours of cells, they can lock the lithium price at 200,000 RMB per ton, a lithium carbonate, which, you know, earlier or late last year was up to 600,000 RMB per ton. So it's quite an interesting move. Both BYD and CATL over the last 12 months have been very bullish about how much lithium is coming into the market over the next number of years and where the prices are going. And obviously, CATL is semi-integrated with regards to lithium. So one assumes that these cells that they're offering at potentially discounted values are for the proportion of their production that's semi-integrated rather than any production that they may have to buy on the open market. CATL just took control of another Chinese lithium mining company this week called uh, Snowway. So they have 100% control of that company. They, uh, yeah, they are integrated in the lithium supply chain. In mostly, well, you saw what happened in Australia, but in China, they have a number of... Um, CATL forms a lot of JVs throughout the whole supply chain. Electrolyte, recycling, cathode materials, LFP, and lithium also. Looks like, even though they can uh, still source lithium on the international markets, of course, uh, that they they will be using the domestically produced Chinese lithium for for the uh, to lock in that two hundred thousand RMB price. And do you get the impression that CATL came up with this strategy on on their own, or do you think that they got a, a tap on the shoulder to the government by the government to just say, look, 
uh, you need to sort of calm the price down. Not sure. There's a few issues between CATL and the government. Uh, you know, CATL are beginning to dominate the market, although they have slightly losing market share of year. Traditionally, Chinese government don't like one company in control of a particular industry or particular market. And CATL in, in China have been suing a lot of their competitors. Similar to what we saw in the Korean between you know, Korean players like LG Chem and SK Innovation in terms of IP or staff members moving to uh, companies. Also seen in the Silicon Valley as well. CATL have been suing a lot of competitors uh, and trying to stunt their growth. And also they have these policies of we will not supply you EV makers if you don't Agree to at least purchase 80% of your sales from CATL. That's a big problem for companies like NEO who are not happy with the policy. Especially recently, you can't always rely on CATL to fully satisfy the orders. And um, NEO have have begun and beginning to plan to build their own lithium-ion battery production plant to supply themselves. CATL like to lock in their customers as much as they can. And now they have this new policy with the uh, lithium carbonate. So they have a few angles, yeah. Not sure if the Chinese government want them to have that much control. Right, right. Okay, that's interesting because you know I've heard a number of sort of Western commentators suggest that it's CA Hill's attempt to sort of pressure pressure the mining industry. If it is, I mean, as with all of these sort of attempts, probably successful in in weak markets. But as soon as the market starts to um, starts to overheat again, as as I'm sure it will at some point in the near future probably not going to work. So, uh, yeah, uh, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. But um, uh, certainly an interesting move by CATL. Yeah, CATL are very busy at the moment, of course. And uh, this one is, uh, you know, uh, the lithium carbonate price is a big problem for a lot of EV manufacturers to make money. And energy storage, which was a little industry where you the lithium carbonate price until it went to 600,000 RMB, wasn't really the main factor because you can sell ESS storage cells at a little higher price, higher premium and make money. But even so, lithium carbonate was a big problem and that price was a big problem in that industry. And um, so, yeah, it's right. It's interesting, the lock-in price of 200,000 tons, that mean people are, you, you get asked every day, I'm sure, Matt, uh, what is the price of lithium carbonate going to be mm. next week or uh, next month, uh, let alone five years from now? If I had a penny for every time, <laughs> I'd be a millionaire by now, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, you should just um, give your uh, daily uh, lithium price forecast, man. I think that will... Uh... <laughs> yeah. Anything else sort of catch your eye in terms of the Chinese market or... or um, well, yeah, you know, it's a very slow start, right? Uh, January in terms of EV sales, as you mentioned earlier, battery production. And you might be offered a little bit of this, but the reversal again of the lithium carbonate price to lithium hydroxide price. Now there's a lithium hydroxide premium again. Lithium hydroxide inventories are at uber low levels, very, very low levels. But But what's quite interesting is that ternary cathode inventories are at quite high levels at the moment. So... Ternary cathode inventories are at high levels. LFP cathode inventories are not at such high levels, but at higher levels, obviously, than they were in the in the back end of last year. And then lithium carbonate inventories are at quite high levels, but lithium hydroxide inventories are at low levels. So I'm sure there's a story in there, but that's it, that's it, yeah. pretty much associated with the fact that we've seen a, a big drop 
in production for LFP cells in December and January, and not quite such a big drop in, in production for ternary cells, but really across the board, we did see a big drop in cells in, in December and January, and we were expecting that to bounce back at the beginning of February, but it didn't bounce back quite as quickly. And, and what we're hearing is that a lot of migrant workers in China took the opportunity to spend longer with their families for Chinese New Year, because of course, they've been forbidden from traveling for the previous two years. So, you know, well, we, yeah. we are starting to see activity sort of picking up now. And we saw EV sales growth certainly higher in the second two weeks of February than it was in the in the first and anecdotally relatively strong in March as well so far. So it could be that it's just that the restocking cycle has been delayed by that two or three weeks. Yeah, I, I did visit another EV manufacturer in, in China, well known, and they weren't in production in February, maybe for that week, due to lack of components, apparently. But yeah, they quite big EV manufacturer as well. It's interesting. Maybe it was migrant workers, component issues again, uh, arising in uh, January. But that was that, quite surprising. That's interesting because we, we've sort of been hearing that sort of component issues were, were alleviating. But it's interesting because you still do hear of component issues, certainly for the European OEMs uh, and, and to a lesser extent in the US, but uh, less so in Asia, but obviously still a, uh, still a recurring, yeah, a recurring yeah. issue. Yes. Anything else that, that, that sort of caught your eye? I'm going to Korea next week for the, <laughs> the Interbattery show. That thing is phenomenal. Yeah, that one's going to be phenomenal. So um, I wish I have a We'll have a Korea update week and we'll have a Korea update call after this one, I'm sure. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, uh, it'll be very interesting because I think the, the, the Korean battery makers have got fingers in a lot of pies. And I think, um, you know, it's particularly interesting seeing how the Korean battery makers are, are some of the key movers and shakers in Europe. And now with the advent of the IRA, some of the key movers and shakers in the US as well. So I'm sure you'll have some very interesting discussions. And of course, the uh, the Korean cathode makers as well, benefiting from that. So um, yeah, yeah I'm looking well, forward to your feedback. Well, they're all under pressure now. Uh, they have, you know, they might get the US market to themselves, but they don't have access to raw materials or domestically produced raw materials in the US. That's a big issue. You, you'll notice they're buying or JVing or buying or investing in a lot of, U.S. recycling companies. I think they have the market. They don't have the materials. I think that the materials are there. It's just a question of, of getting them to the market, not necessarily in the U.S., but certainly in Canada and Australia, which are, yeah. are covered under the IRA. And I understand uh, over the last couple of weeks, possibly a little bit of a um, of a change in the, in the terms of the IRA as it uh, relates to the battery industry with regards to the fact that things like separators and potentially aluminium and copper foils for batteries could now potentially be manufactured outside outside North America and still be liable for the tax credits. So I think that's quite an interesting change as well. Yeah, you will need a lot of copper foil for all the gigawatts that have been announced. Yeah. Uh, it's you know, a significant, significant amount. Uh, and it's not many players in that industry. Mostly Chinese, Japanese uh, are involved. Mostly Chinese and Japanese, actually. Uh, and then you have SK Nexus, of course. But um, that's about it. 
SKN Nexus have a copper foil plant in Indonesia and looking to build one in Europe as well for a while. Uh, in Poland, I believe. They might have even broken ground already, but I don't know yeah. about the US. I mean, there there are announcements for copper and aluminium foil plants, but well, the scale I actually, that's needed, I mean, so many more need to go through than, than what's I met, I, I met a copper or foil, or, or we went to a copper foil producing factory in, in China as well. It's quite a complex process to get battery grade. It's about the thinness of the copper foil. It's the thinness. Uh, yeah. and, and I mean, it's been getting thinner over the last three years. And, and that's quite a, uh, as you said, a complicated process to get it that thin. Yeah. And especially for the Korean battery makers in the US, they'll be using 4.5 micron, I guess, where uh, most battery makers, if copper foil made us a battery, mar- battery market, aren't competent to do that, usually make six to eight micron thick copper foil. It's not something that's turnkey. Quite interesting uh, developments today with regards to the European version of the IRA. So the European Critical Raw Materials Act and the Net Zero Industry Act. Information leaps today. I get a lot of questions on the IRA. Do you do you get a lot of questions? Uh, I spent so much time in the IRA when it first came out that first hot week and um yeah, I did get a lot of questions. I uh, kind of moved away from it now, though. So yeah. but, uh, I guess the Critical Raw Materials Act, something I'll have to look into. I haven't read anything about it today, though. Yeah, I mean, initial sort of takeaways, it looks a little bit disappointing. It looks quite unwieldy. So it's going to rely on uh, adding a very substantial regulatory burden to, to companies that are trying to develop projects. They, they have you know, suggested that that they will start to identify strategic projects and critical raw materials. But how are you going to submit that strategic project? How long are they going to take to consider that proposal? Once projects have been treated as strategic, they say that they will streamline, in inverted commas, the permitting process. So it should take a maximum of 24 months. That's a long time for a permitting process. And, you know, the other uh, aspect that's very interesting is the establishment of the European stockpile for critical raw materials, which I think is great for the industry, but probably not in the way that the EU hoped. So obviously, in, this, in an environment where demand for materials is, is going to grow rapidly, you therefore need to build a bigger and bigger stockpile of material, which means that you're, you're a, a net buyer of material above and beyond what you need for consumption. So you know, surely that's going to tighten sort of supply and demand balances, which isn't, you know, probably what they want to be doing. And then the final point that stood out for me is this requirement for 15% of of critical raw materials demands to come from recycling by 2030. And while that's probably very viable in, in materials like copper and nickel, in the other battery raw materials where they're developing from tiny, tiny markets, it's completely unrealistic. I mean, if you look at the average age of an EV battery now, it's what, 10 to 12 years. The amount of raw material that was available for recycling from batteries made in 2018, 2019, that's going to be available for end of life recycling in 2030 is going to be much less than 15% of what demand will be in, in, in 2030. So. I just think that um, it's not as good a piece of legislation as the uh, as the IRA. 
Yeah, it sounds like pressure. And our own forecast for recycling, it looks like 2027. You get significant amounts of material. But, you know, you're just looking at EV cells. Uh, production scrap will also be, you know, counted as um, I mean, recycled pr- materials. Pr- production scrap is important. And, you know, with some cell factories only yielding, having battery yields of, what, 60 to 70% in, in ternary, there is going to be a lot of production scrap around. But the problem is, in terms of sort of supply-demand balance, I mean, effectively, that's going to be reused to generate this sort of supply-demand. I suppose, potentially, you, you could get around the 15% rule that way, but it's not actually adding on additional supply. It's just supply that's already been used for manufacturing that can effectively be reused for manufacturing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess it will count as recycling. If it goes through a recycling machine, it's going to be mm. credited. You know, if all the gigafactories uh, go ahead as planned in Europe, uh, of all these companies who've never made batteries before, there's going to be a lot of production scrap. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, even even if you look, I mean, if you look at Gigafactory One in uh, in the US, I mean, that started up production with a, a battery yield of something like fifty percent. They got up to what 75 percent within two years. I mean, you know, that's a company like Panasonic that had been making batteries for a long time. So, you know, with these companies that are coming in, you know, as you say, never having made batteries before, there's going to be a lot of production scrap. And, uh, you know, from a raw materials uh, perspective, it's it's very strong. And it's one of the, the errors that a lot of forecasters make in their models, that they don't factor in production scrap and scrappage. And the amount of material that's wasted because of that, if you've got an 80% battery yield, then you need one over 80% amount of raw materials to to produce to uh, capacity in your plant. So yeah. I was just reading. A lot of, uh, a lot of uh, yeah. forecasters are not factoring that in. I was just reading there that uh, of um, 80%, but that... Uh, CATL is only uh, utilizing 80% of their production capacity right now. Not, that's not due to scrap. I mean, that is just they're mm-hmm. using 80%. So you got 80% of production capacity if you're as successful as a CATL, and then you get 80% of that again. You can really quickly see the numbers changing in terms of capacity and I, and available I think, to the market. You know, one, of, one of the things that I think is, is very important will, will become probably less so over time is that you know a lot of the battery capacity that was developed in sort of 17, 18, 19, can't really be used anymore. It's, it's it's worthless. Maybe you could use it for ESS batteries, but certainly not for EV batteries. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see as the industry matures whether those factories can continue to be used or whether their technology will become obsolete and, and they'll need to be replaced. But you, you could have a, a, a situation where, you know, a lot of cell producers are unable to, to operate there might be certain parts of production I can still use probably, but uh, yeah, this large form, cylindrical format cell, like the 4680, every other manufacturer, including LG now, has kind of designed their own version of that 4680 cell. It seems to be really changing the market um, for uh, EVs. So were the, a market maybe that the prismatic was going to get uh, could shift towards the uh, large uh, cylindrical cells, which uh, then... There'd have to be a lot of retooling done in existing EV factory or battery factories and EV factories actually uh, for battery pack assembly. Whether, mm. but the large format's more geared, I believe, towards uh, cell to chassis or cell to pack 
type structure. But the, in China, yeah, uh, a lot of the battery manufacturers are looking at at large format cylindrical. Yeah, yeah, like so, pouch is 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 kind of losing a bit of its market share for yeah. EVs, um, and uh, of course, prismatic is still you know popular in buses and stuff. But uh, for uh, premium EVs, you no. Know, Prismatic is not really used anymore, okay. which is the large format, which you could use also for, and so you get two uses out of it. You could use it for energy storage or EVs. Okay. But, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, and um, the big thing. Uh, so we looked at a lot of production lines in China as well. The big takeaway is automation. Chinese are, you know, barely have anybody inside the factories now anymore. They're going for 100% automation, which doesn't really exist in the market at the moment, uh, even as Is that why the Chinese cell factories are coming in at, at very substantially lower capital intensity to the, to the projects in Europe and the US? Well, they're using Chinese equipment, right? Uh, US usually source, for historical reasons also, from uh, Korean or Japanese, mostly Korean uh, equipment suppliers, but the... Um, the Chinese uh, gigafactory battery assembly equipment is uh, fantastic. It's really come on over the years. That was due to, because, you know, CTL basically built all their own lines. BYD built their own lines, designed the equipment. And that's filtered into the market as those employees and engineers of CATL went out on their own and built their own equipment assembly factories are still tied to CATL, working with CATL and supply that equipment. So that, you know, uh, the equipment... Uh, the cell assembly equipment uh, has really come a long way in China. One of the big factors running a, a, a real determinant on a, more OPEX and CAPEX is the cost of labor in China is a big, a big factor. Uh, how much it costs per kilowatt hour to, to, um, to produce a cell. I just saw, I was reading a report the other day where it's close to 25 US dollars kilowatt hour to produce a cell. Uh, labor, uh, sorry, uh, $25 per kilowatt hour for a labor in Germany where it's like $6 in China wow. for the same person. So big difference. So so that's definitely going to impact whether they get to $100 per kilowatt hour price. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the uh, labor is a big issue. Uh, not a big issue, but a, a big determinant of the final OPEX. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, thank you very much. We will say thank you very much to Cormac, and we look forward to uh, some interesting intelligence from your uh, trip to Korea next month. Yeah, yeah, that that will be a real good one. Uh, I'll get a lot of pictures for you, Matt. Okay, (laughs) great. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for March. I'd just like to flag again our yearbook, which you can download via the website for free. And as always, you can get more detail on any of the topics we discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review. We can find at www.batterymaterialreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.